So today is October 23rd, 2017, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii, and today is the Tirbhav, the anniversary of the disappearance from this world of His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. So we're going to be just looking at Prabhupada's life and example, his teachings, and how we can connect with him. So, in the Mahabharata, as quoted in Chaitanya Charitamrita, we learn that if we want to know the path, how to attain perfections, Mahajanayena Gita we have to follow the path of the Mahajanas. That if we just go to the scriptures, Bina, we're going to find apparent contradictions. Just like Srila Prabhupada would say how the scriptures say if you touch the stool of an animal you have to take bath but you can use uh, the stool of a cow to clean. So just reading that in the scriptures, you'll see, oh, this is, this is contradictory. It doesn't make any sense. Therefore, if you just go to the scriptures, you'll become bewildered. And the different philosophers, each one of them wants to outdo each other in philosophy. They all want to present something new and different. So if you want to know, you have to follow the path of the Mahajanas, you, you, you have to see what do they do. The behavior of the sadhus shows how to apply the scriptures, how to understand the scriptures, how to live philosophy. And without that example, it's practically speaking impossible. And Srila Prabhupada used to like to quote, that example is better than precept. So that is two things. That means that if you tell a story or give an example of something that giving of an example has more power than just telling the philosophy but it also means that what you do has more impact than what you say now, it is said that we can understand a sadhu by how the sadhu speaks but ultimately we understand a sadhu by what they do so looking at Srila Prabhupada's life, of course he was born in a Vaishnava family. He said that his parents were pure Vaishnavas. His father ran a cloth shop, but Prabhupada said his real business was puja. <laughs> that he was running the cloth shop as a convention, you could say, as his duty, as his service. But his real business was puja. And Srila Prabhupada had a very affectionate relationship with his parents, especially with his father. So, Srila Prabhupada really liked puris. Actually, the whole time he was growing up, Prabhupada wouldn't eat chapatis. He would only eat puris. And his father would make puris sometimes at night after his son was asleep, but he would wake his son up and uh, have, have him help with the cooking and to eat the puris. Uh, in fact, Prabhupada learned cooking from both of his parents. And his parents were very uh, indulgent with him. And Prabhupada talked about how they gave him a toy gun and then he had a tantrum in the store that he wanted one for both hands, and so they gave him one for both hands. <laughs> so they were generally very uh, indulgent. Although also, uh, he would discipline him, like he refused to go to school, so his mother hired some men to, to personally take him to school. And Prabhupada talked about how there was some pressure to send him to London to become a lawyer, and his father said, no, no, I don't want my son contaminated by the Western culture. I want, I want my son to become a great devotee of Radharani. 
And his father, every night, Robert said, there were no less than four guests at their home. So that's one of the dharmas of a grihasta. So imagine most of us, <laughs> we rarely have a guest. But Prabhupada's family, every day, there was at least four guests. And these guests were generally sadhus, or people who looked like sadhus. You know, Prabhupada said his father was not very discriminating, and anyone who appeared to be a sadhu, he would be invited home for dinner. Which uh, gave Shiva Prabhupada a rather skeptical view of sadhus, because so many of these people that his father invited over were actually smoking marijuana or so many things. When he was very young, Srila Prabhupada wanted to have his own Rathiyatra festival. Prabhupada was very attached to the Rathiyatra. Uh, later on in life, he would look at the train schedules to Puri and try to figure out how he could go to the Rathiyatra. But as a child, he wanted to do his own Rathiyatra. So his parents, along with the help of the uh, neighboring adults, they helped him build a little Rathiyatra cart. And uh, the children were playing, and the adults asked Gormohande, Prabhupada's father, he said, why haven't you invited us to this Rathiyatra? And he said, oh, it's just children. No, no, this is not children. This is a real thing. And Prabhupada and his siblings, they would worship across the street at the little Radha temple. And eventually Prabhupada and his sister uh, worshipped their own Radha Krishna deities as childhood play. Then uh, Prabhupada joined Gandhi's movement, and so although he received his college degree, he refused to accept the diploma in the ceremony. And his parents arranged for him to get a job in the laboratory of a friend. Eventually, Srila Prabhupada opened his own pharmaceutical business, uh, made his own natural medicines, compounded his own natural medicines. You can see and hear a number of Prabhupada's lectures where it's obvious that he has quite a, a knowledge of chemistry and Prabhupada's letters, that he knows quite a lot about health and natural healing. And when Prabhupada was 22, a friend invited him. He said, there's a very nice sadhu here I'd like you to meet. And Prabhupada became, became, was skeptical because of his father's liberality with sadhus. So he says, oh, I don't want to meet any sadhus. And, and that's very interesting because many times we write off people and their interest in Krishna consciousness because of one thing or another. And you might meet somebody, oh, you're interested in Krishna consciousness. Oh, I'm not interested in any gurus. I'm interested in any teachers. And we just think, oh, what a, what a nonsense person. But, but Srila Prabhupada also, that was his response. Why should I meet any sadhus? And his friend insisted, no, no, this is actually a very nice saintly person. You should meet him. And just to please his friend, so Prabhupada went. I guess his friend was named Narendra. And Prabhupada was very impressed. As soon as he heard uh, Srila Bhakti Sananda Saraswati Thakur speaking, he thought, oh, this is a genuine sadhu. This is someone... Uh, it's funny that my father, when he first met Srila Prabhupada, had the same reaction. He said, this is a genuine holy man. So Srila Prabhupada, as soon as he met Srila Bhakti Siddhanta, immediately he said, oh, this is a genuine holy man. This is someone who's really preaching the message of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And he presented his doubt to Bhakti Siddhanta. So having doubts and presenting doubts is something that we find happening throughout the scripture. Uh, Arjuna presents his doubts to Krishna. How could you have spoken to the sun god when we're contemporary? Uh, why are you telling me uh, to give up all abominable activities and yet fight in this war? Why are you teaching me a system of meditation that is too difficult? My mind is too restless. 
So Arjuna brings up so many doubts. Mars Pariket brings up doubts. He says, I don't believe that Prius Chicha is actually going to cure any one of their sinful activities. So this Tadvadi Pranipatena Pari Prashnena Seri, I want you to ask questions. And among the questions one should ask is relieving one's doubt. So Srila Prabhupada asked Bhakti Siddhanta, he said, you're telling us to preach Lord Chaitanya's movement, telling us to preach his message, but we're a colony of the, of the British. We're a dependent nation, and no one's going to pay us any attention unless we have our seat in the, at the table of countries. This was what Gandhi was pushing. And Bhakti Siddhanta said, it doesn't matter. These things, uh, they're superficial, they come and go. And the message is very urgent. And Bhaktisanta's answer convinced Shiva Prabhupada. Bhaktisanta said to Prabhupada and his friend, you're young, educated men, you should be preaching the cult of Mahaprabhu in English to English-speaking people. And Prabhupada thought at the time, you know, I'm a, I'm a young man, I'm married, I have a child, I have a business, I have so many things going on, you know, how am I going to find time to become a preacher? So that was his initial response. And again, I find this interesting because often that's our initial response as well. That's, it's a nice instruction, but, but I can't do that now. Uh, but Prabhupada kept it in mind. And, uh, of course, 11 years later, he took, formally took initiation from Srila Bhakti Siddhanta. He used his earnings from his business uh, to help build the Mat. I think in uh, Alalabad, particularly, he was the main contributor to the construction of the Mat. But he was... Uh, he explained that he was always sort of on the outside as a married man with a business. He wasn't living in the mutt like the sannyasis and the brahmacharis. He wasn't, in a sense, a full-time uh, worker in the mutt. But, of course, Srila Prabhupada was a full-time devotee in the ultimate sense. And this example is something that we should really be careful about in our own dealings with devotees. You know, there was a mood even at the beginning of ISKCON that has persisted to a large extent that only the renunciates or only the renounced grahastas who are living on, in temples and uh, working externally, ostensibly full-time for the preaching mission, are really the full-time dedicated people, and other people are somehow lesser. And uh, frankly, uh, there are many of, of Srila Prabhupada's godbrothers who saw him also like that, 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 oh, here's just some grahasta doing the business and giving some donations, but Srila Bhakti Saraswati didn't respond like that. He said, oh, he will do what is needed in due course of time. And full-on devotion isn't something just by one's externals. Just like Krishna didn't tell Arjuna, give up the battle and become a sannyasi. So Prabhupada's life, he was a full-time devotee, a pure devotee, although from the external point of view, he appeared like a, you know ordinary person, some religious person or... I mean, he had a reputation for being a religious person, but uh, people didn't understand really who he was. Marjorie Hugana says a similar statement to Jed Bharat. He says, I offer my obeisances to the great persons who are in disguise. And we should be very, very careful, again, that not to think, oh, just because someone is a sannyasi or a sannyasi from India, they're more advanced than a, a child in Sweden. <laughs> It, it, this is, is a very external way of seeing things. And in fact, if we see things in that way, then it's considered that our consciousness is hellish. So Srila Prabhupada did take initiation 11 years later, which is also interesting that Prabhupada waited 11 years to take initiation. Although he said from the first meeting, 
he accepted Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati as his spiritual master in his heart. And this example is also important that Srila uh, Prabhupada set the example of taking formal initiation, that he didn't consider that just simply accepting a guru in your heart is sufficient. One needs to take the formality and get initiated. And then, of course, Srila Prabhupada would regularly, whenever he had the opportunity, he would give classes in English, as his guru had taught him, had instructed him. And he started the English magazine, uh, Back to Godhead magazine, which he did on his own. He was writing the articles, he was editing it, collecting the money for the printing, getting it, arranging for the printing, and distributing the magazine on his own. And his printing of the magazine was sporadic. It would go off and on over the years. But he always kept foremost his Guru Maharaj's instruction. And this example is also something we can take to heart, how we're, we're given so many instructions by our spiritual authorities, and as long as we keep those uppermost and we do our best to do them, even if we're not able to do them fully, as still that is very satisfying. Srila Prabhupada writes in his purport to Bhagavad Gita 331 that even if we're not able to follow all the instructions, if we don't resent the principle, if we don't criticize the instruction, and if we do our best to follow the instructions, then eventually we will become perfect. So then when Prabhupada was in his 50s and uh, four of his five living children, I understand he had uh, quite a number of other children that didn't survive to adulthood, but four of his five surviving children were married and his wife had never really supported his activities. She, didn't, she was a devotee. She worshipped the deities. Uh, she was a Vaishnava, but she wasn't interested in preaching. She didn't come to his initiation when he would have programs at, at his home. She wouldn't participate. And then one day, the cook was sick, so she didn't want to cook. She'd become so dependent on the cook that she'd become lazy. And therefore, she just bought some prepared biscuits from a shop. And she bought them by trading Prabhupada's Bhagavatam. So the combination of the fact that she was too lazy to cook, that she was buying already prepared biscuits made by non-devotees, and that she had given away Prabhupada's Bhagavatam, uh, those three things made Prabhupada decide that it was time to take up the Vanaprastha order. And uh, previous to that, he had asked her to give up drinking tea. And he had said to her, you know, it's going to be tea or me. And she said, well, I guess I'll keep the tea then. So, and she hadn't really taken that seriously. And Srila Prabhupada had often left for his business. So when he left that day also, his uh, children and wife assumed that he was just going on a business trip and coming back, but he didn't come back. This particular situation is also very instructive. Sometimes devotees think that if a person has taken the renounced order due to some difficulty, that it's not real renunciation. And actually, real renunciation can come in one of two ways. It can come because you've had a, a satisfying material life and you've finished with that part of your life and fulfilled your desires and you're ready to go on to being renounced. And it can also come because material life has been frustrating and you've seen the difficulties in life and therefore you've decided to give it up. And we see this renu renunciation in difficulty was done by Maharaj Anga when his son Venu was a Vena was a, a very evil a psychopath, we would call him today. We see it with Vidura when Duryodhana threatened basically to beat him uh, almost to the point of death. And Vidura said, oh, it's time to leave. So sometimes there are situations, difficult situations, 
in which we see the hand of the Lord. And that's what Prabhupada did here. He saw, you know, the, Krishna is telling me that my household life is no longer favorable. I'm already in my 50s. And he was thinking that his youngest daughter should get married, but he said that all the men he had proposed, his wife had rejected, and he can understand that she didn't want that daughter to get married. He said he, she wanted to keep her as a servant, which in fact is what happened. She never married. Uh, so Prabhupada decided that he couldn't keep opposing his wife on this. There was nothing he could do, and that he would have to leave that in the hands of God. So uh, Srila Prabhupada tried to work with the Gaudiya Mat. Uh, he was in, tried to establish his own organization in Jansi, where he started the League of Devotees, the precursor to Iskhan. He did make one disciple there. And uh, he got some moderate success, but then the governor's wife took over the building, which he felt it was not something he could fight. And as I said, he tried to live in some of the temples. By that time, of course, the Gaudiya Mat had split into several different groups. And he was staying in one mat in Delhi. But when he found a way to print 800 copies of their magazine instead of 400 for the same price, he was asked to leave. Uh, he was told, you're putting pressure on the brahmacharis to distribute more, and you're simply agitating them. So, Srila <laughs> Prabhupada, we definitely agitated people to preach. So he was basically politely kicked out. He was told, go and join the Parikrama in Vrindavan. And Prabhupada, for the next four and a half, five years, was completely homeless. He was penniless and homeless. He would print his Back to Godhead magazines whenever he had a chance, but he was staying at the homes of, of different friends or different sympathizers and staying at different temples in various places, trying to collect literally a few paises to go on a train and a few rupees here and there to print magazines. And it was a, a very difficult time. And I think that anyone who had seen Prabhupada in that time would never have guessed that he would have become the world leader of an organization that would have a huge effect on the planet. And then after those years, Prabhupada ended up getting a room at Radhadamadar for five rupees a month. And during that time, he met one, just one gentleman, not someone he knew well, who said, you know, magazines people throw away. If you print books, that would be better. And of course, Srila Bhakti Sananda Sarasvati at Radhakund had told Srila Prabhupada, if you ever get money, print books. Bhakti Santa Sarasvati had said, we built all these mats, but people are fighting over which room they're going to live in. He said, I'm prepared to sell all of the marble in the mats to print books. So this idea of publishing and distributing of publications was something that Srila Bhakti Santa Sarasvati had really emphasized, especially to Srila Prabhupada, and then to write in English. So Prabhupada started translating the Bhagavatam into English, and as soon as he finished one volume, you know, he raised the money for printing, which often meant taking a train without the money to return and having to beg the money to return. And once he printed one volume, then he was showing that one volume to get money for the next two. And he, altogether, he printed three volumes before he came to America. And that was staying in the Radhadamadar temple for another, like, four or five years. Altogether, it was about nine years that Prabhupada was in India after taking Vanapras before he came to America. And Prabhupada would regularly ask for sponsors in America. So whenever he would meet uh, anybody, he would ask them, you know, do you know anyone who could sponsor me in America? So he, he was constantly asking, and, and people were frequently saying, oh, yes, yes, we know, we'll make this arrangement. I mean, we all know people like that who will say, you know, yes, 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 <laughs> right? 
we have so many people in our life. Yes, yes, I'll take care of it, right? And they don't. So that was what was happening. But there was one gentleman who actually came through. And much to Prabhupada's surprise, this gentleman's son, Gopal Agarwal, had agreed to sponsor Srila Prabhupada for one month. And this was just at the time that the United States was opening up tourism for Indians. So until this time, you know, at countries go through different phases into how they feel about tourists and immigrants. And right now there's a strong anti-immigrant mood in the United States. So in those days there, was, uh, there were strong quotas, not only on immigrants, but even on tourists. So it was very difficult for someone from India to visit the United States even as a tourist. To get a tourist visa was extremely difficult. And that had just been changed. They had just opened up the quotas for immigrants and they had just opened up the quotas for tourists. So it was just at that time that Srila Prabhupada got his sponsor in America. And of course, at this time also in America was just the very beginning of what was called at the time the counterculture what other people called the hippies, although hippies didn't usually call themselves hippies. And this was a, a, a movement among young people, teenagers, probably from like age 14 to 25. There was a saying, don't trust anyone over 30. And a rebelling against the society, rebelling against, you know, having the suburban home with two cars in the garage and a dog and 2.8 kids and having a job and, and getting old and dying. <laughs> And just there's got to be something more to life. And the, in this, in the counterculture movement, there was definitely an influence of India. I mean, the wearing of beads and flowers. Even, we'd have to say, the prevalence of the smoking of marijuana, which was, was and is indulged in by some of the pseudo-sadhus that Prabhupada's father invited. So the idea of using marijuana as, as some kind of aid for meditation and living an austere life, dropping out of society, and trying to find a higher consciousness. Unfortunately, most of the counterculture were trying to find a higher consciousness through chemicals, like marijuana or um, LSD or... uh, What is it? I forget what it's called. Anyway, the uh, mushrooms. So in, in various ways, they were trying to find a higher consciousness. And they were rejecting the the norms of society. So, of course, the counterculture didn't reject sex, but they rejected married married sex. Of course, at the same time was the invention of the birth control pill. So, before that, widespread illicit sex was really not an option. And there was also the use of antibiotics for various venereal diseases. So, the combination of antibiotics for sexually transmitted diseases and the birth control pill for pregnancy made it chemically possible for widespread illicit sex. But the counterculture took illicit sex and intoxication as their religion, you could say. You know, uh, there was also the protest against the Vietnam War and they were saying, make love, not war. So it was a very interesting time when you had large numbers of young people who were looking for some kind of alternate lifestyle and alternate reality and some kind of higher consciousness, and had, in one sense, taken up a kind of vairagya. They'd taken up a kind of renunciation of the society. So that's when Prabhupada came to America, and uh, when Prabhupada came to America, I don't believe there were any Hindu temples in America at all, because, as I say, they were uh, 
there were hardly any Indians. And he stayed for a month in Butler, Pennsylvania, where he spoke at the YMCA and etc. And then he took a bus to New York, where he stayed with at the at the grace of one Dr. Mishra, who was a impersonalist yogi, but who was kind to Prabhupada, gave him a place to stay. And, you know, some people were interested, but not very much. And Prabhupada saw that he wasn't really advancing his mission there. At one point there, he had his typewriter stolen. He was living very austerely. I mean, he was living in a place without a shower. He had to, to go to another place to take a shower. And Prabhupada wasn't really prepared for the New York winters. You know, he'd never seen snow. It was very heavy snow that year. Well, it was a very difficult situation. He had very little money. He was getting money just whatever people would donate or selling his books. And then uh, one young man who was attending his lectures suggested that he would find more interest in the lower part of Manhattan. And so Prabhupada got a place in the Bowery, which is mostly a place for alcoholics and, and homeless people, and there he shared a loft with a, a young hippie. And Prabhupada was giving classes there. And there he met uh, really his first follower, uh, the person who became Mukunda Maharaj. He started attending Srila Prabhupada's classes on the Bowery, and when Prabhupada's roommate had a bad trip on LSD, uh, Mukunda arranged for Prabhupada to move into 26 Second Avenue, matchless gift, which became the first temple. And then Prabhupada on the street met Hayagriva and Kirtananda, um, Umapati, Achyutananda, and those were the people that became his first regular students. And it was interesting when he met Hayagriva, Hayagriva had told Prabhupada that he had just come back from India looking for a guru. And uh, Hayagriva also found it interesting that Srila Prabhupada was trying to produce books, and Hayagriva was an English professor. And so Prabhupada basically immediately met someone who was able to help him with editing his books. If you see copies of the first books that Srila Prabhupada brought to America, you can see the spelling is, is not correct, uh, grammar and composition, so many problems, the paper was poor quality, the printing quality was very poor. So Prabhupada was immediately put in touch uh, with Satsupra Maharaj, who was an educated person working as a social worker, Brahmananda, who was a a teacher in the school, Hayagriva, who was an English professor. So Prabhupada was immediately put in touch with very educated people who were able to help him with his publishing. And he started having regular classes at the storefront. And that's when he incorporated ISKCON. Meanwhile, Mukunda Maharaj uh, went, of course it wasn't Maharaj then, he went with his wife Janaki. He was going to the West Coast for some other purpose, a musical purpose, I believe. And as he was walking out the door, Prabhupada said, try to start a temple there in California. So that's what he did. He gathered some people, uh, Sharmasunda and Malati, and Guru Das and Jamuna. Jamuna was his sister-in-law. They set up Prabhupada chanting and speaking at the Avalon Ballroom uh, with the draw of the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin and other uh, Moby Grape and other big bands at the time. And it was when Prabhupada got off the airplane in San Francisco which was the first time he'd ever been on an airplane, he was greeted by 50 people chanting Hare Krishna and giving him flowers, and that was by uh, Mukunda Maharaj. And uh, from there, not only was Srila Prabhupada starting centers, but his disciples were opening centers. So the, the precedent of Mukunda and Janaki opening a center became the norm. Prabhupada sent disciples to Montreal 
And the big breakthrough went was happened when he sent three married couples to London. And they went there with nothing. They were sometimes living in boxes on the sidewalk. But Chamasundar felt that the way that he was going to spread Krishna consciousness was to have a connection with the Beatles, who had already had some interest in Eastern philosophy. And so he arranged to meet George Harrison. And it turned out that George Harrison was regularly listening to a recording, a record that Srila Prabhupada had made with Alan Coleman in New York, the Happening album, and that he was looking for the devotees. And George Harrison meeting the devotees was what really catapulted Hare Krishna onto the world stage. So George Harrison made a recording in London, which became a number one hit in Europe. The devotees were traveling all over Europe chanting. And then, of course, a little later, the Radhakrishna Temple album with Govinda, which we play every morning in all of our ISKCON centers. And George Harrison, of course, gave the money for the printing of Krishna book and wrote a forward for Krishna book, which, you know, having a famous person like that, if you think about the spread of any major religion in sociological terms, you'll find that having some famous person, usually it's a political leader, become involved in the religion was what brought the religion from a few adherents to a major force. And, of course, Prabhupada then circled the world 14 times in the next 11 years, and he opened. Uh, he and his disciples opened 108 temples. He initiated over 4,700 disciples, and he translated, I think, about 80 books, which were distributed in, in the millions and... Initially, we were maintaining the temples through sort of random donations on Harinam. Then we had the spiritual sky incense business. And eventually, we were maintaining the movement primarily through book distribution. Srila Prabhupada established schools at New Vrindavan and Dallas and in Vrindavan. And he really preached uh, farm communities and simple living. And then, as Srila Prabhupada's health had been difficult for quite some time, he'd had heart attacks on the boat. He'd had a stroke and gone back to India. And uh, finally, especially with his very intense schedule, so he left us, of course, uh, 40 years ago uh, today. Uh, The the date by the solar calendar was November 14th. It was just a few days, three days after Govardhan Puja. And, uh, of course, I know at least for myself that we... Speaking for myself and others who were around me, we, we didn't expect Shula Prabhupada to leave us at that time. He'd been ill so many times before and recovered. And we also had this mood that until he finished translating the Bhagavatam, that he would be with us. So that he left us after finishing the 10th Canto, Chapter 13 only, was, was really a shock. And he was, of course, Prabhupada's emphasis on books was evident until literally his final breath that Prabhupada on his deathbed in Vrindavan, was still translating and commenting, commenting on books through a dictaphone. Um, uh, and preaching in general. I mean, it was interesting also, if you, if you read the last sections that Srila Prabhupada translated, so he's not, he's not only talking about Leela, he's talking about Varnashram. <laughs> Prabhupada and... and Prabhupada had an interest, and we'll segue now over to Srila Prabhupada's teachings from Prabhupada's life. So Prabhupada had, of course we could say a lot more, but uh, we have a very limited time. So Prabhupada's teachings were on all levels. I, I, I don't remember who wrote it, it was something I read within the last year or two, 
some some famous person. I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was. And he was saying that for a religion to be useful, it has to not only preach things that are spiritual, but it also has to give a social platform and an ecological platform. There has to be a way of translating the religion into your everyday life. It can't just be some separated philosophy. So we find that Srila Prabhupada's teachings were on all these levels. Srila Prabhupada was teaching us the, the highest possible spiritual philosophy to teach about uh, rasa, the dasya rasa, sakya rasa, vatsalya rasa, madhurya rasa, to teach about Vrindavan, Vrajkishore, Krishna. I mean, he gave us the, the most exalted understanding of God. And Prabhupada did this from day one. Prabhupada's preaching on 26-2nd Avenue. He was, he was speaking about the gopis. <laughs> you know, he, he was, it was something that was there immediately. Prabhupada translated and wrote Krishna book. I think it was in 1969, 1970. Nectar Devotion was also some, a book which Prabhupada produced very early. And if you, you know, if you read Nectar Devotion, the intimacy, the esoteric, the elevation of the, the leelas that are described in Nectar Devotion. And the Krishna book are very high. And Prabhupada was presenting this not only to his followers, but to the world. So we were going out, I mean, I was going out to the airports and giving Nectar Devotion and Krishna book to everyone, without discrimination. Prabhupada's urge to get Chaitanya Charitamrita translated and published. He was pushed to get 17 volumes in two months. And You, know, you read Chaitanya Charitamrita, the end of Anjalila. It's very intimate. Lila is on a very high level. And Prabhupada was, was giving this to the world. But the way that Srila Prabhupada gave these intimate Lila's to the world was such that it was almost impossible to misunderstand them. I've, I've yet to find somebody reading Prabhupada's books uh, and, and actually following Prabhupada who had some sort of strange, you know, cheap or mundane understanding of Krishna's leelas. That Prabhupada always intertwined philosophy and he gave a very a very chaste and, and philosophical view of these very intimate leelas. Something which we need to be careful of now that he's no longer with us, frankly. But not only was Prabhupada giving that, Prabhupada was also giving a very detailed and specific process of sadhana and I think in this first regard that Prabhupada was giving the highest, most intimate leelas in a way that was almost impossible understood to the general public makes Srila Prabhupada unique in the history of our uh, Gaudiya Acharyas. I think in, in the history of the world because if you see in any religious system of the world a very high esoteric truths were usually hidden in some way or only given to very long-term adherence, like in Judaism, where only rabbis over 40 could study the Kabbalah and things like that nature. So it was a very unique contribution, but also Srila Prabhupada's system of sadhana was a unique contribution, that generally among the Gaudiyas, sadhana would be a very individual thing, and Prabhupada standardized sadhana for his disciples. And I see his doing so as being very significant for worldwide preaching. You know, if you're going to be preaching to people who've been brought up in Vaishnava families and who are already very 
pious and already have some kind of regular worship, then to say, all right, well, these are the general principles and you can individualize your worship would be effective. But if you're going to be preaching to people in Russia and in China and in Brazil and in Australia and in Zimbabwe and in America, it, it, it's not going to work very well. So Prabhupada had a, something systematized. Get up by four in the morning, attend Mangalarti, worship Tulsi, have a Bhagavatam class every day. In this way, chant minimum 16 rounds of japa. I mean, it, it was something that, that he standardized. And our vows at initiation, no eating meat, fish, or eggs, no intoxication, no illicit sex, no gambling, minimum 16 rounds. To have us take vows like that. I mean, this, this was really something that was revolutionary. And I believe his standardization of sadhana and of vows was very much what enabled him to have a worldwide movement. So today you can visit any ISKCON temple, and there are certainly differences in, in local culture and local flavor, and there are some differences in practice, and indeed there should be. But you'll still find that there's some standardization. And of course, the danger of that is that things can become ritualized and mechanical. But the upside is that you have a basic gauge for what is acceptable practice. And then Prabhupada also teaching about the material side of life in a spiritual way. Prabhupada very much emphasized varna and ashrama, which is fascinating since Mahaprabhu rejected them as external and neither varna or ashrama are counted by Rupa Goswami as among the 64 angas of bhakti. But Srila Prabhupada knew that in order to have a worldwide movement you had to have stability of society. You couldn't, otherwise it's an international monastery for Krishna consciousness. It's not a society. For a society, you have to have understanding of how to spiritualize career, that's varna, and how to spiritualize our natural biological life cycles, that is ashrama. So Srila Prabhupada devoted a lot of time and energy in his purports, in his lectures, in his conversations, in his letters, to explaining how to live a life such that the performance of bhakti would come easily and naturally and where bhakti would be integrated into one's life. So I see this also as a very unique contribution and, um, among our, our Vaishnavacharyas and particularly for a worldwide preacher. And then Prabhupada emphasized something which at the time that he came to the West was just starting, just, just starting to be something within the public consciousness and now has become very much so, but at the time was not. And that is simple living. You know, not using artificial fertilizers and pesticides, which he said were forbidden. Um, growing your own food, getting milk from your own cows, living more in harmony with nature. So this message resonated a lot with the people of the counterculture who were interested in getting back to nature, but it was a, a very socially disruptive message in the 1960s. The 1960s, science and technology was supposed to save the world. Uh, we were going to the moon. We had developed antibiotics. Uh, we had telephones and television. And the, the concept was that uh, better living through chemistry was the slogan of, a, I forget which particular company at the time. But I, as I've said many times in my classes, you know, when I was a child, I used to watch this show on TV called Star, Star Trek. And they were traveling in outer space, and the computer would synthesize the food. So it wasn't that they had gardens on their spaceship, but they had, they would just had, you know, bags of chemicals, and they were 
feeding these bags of chemicals into a machine, and the machine would create food from the chemicals. And this was presented as a glorious future. You know, this was, wow, you know, we don't need to farm anymore. So that was the mood at the time. The mood at the time was that artificial food, chemical food, artificial sweeteners, artificial fat, you know, that this was a progress. And so Prabhupada preaching simple living, high thinking, milk your own cows, grow your own food, was very, very radical in the 1960s, 1970s. So Prabhupada was, was teaching on so many levels. He was teaching on the level of, you know, how to grow your food and how to eat, how to have your career, how to have your life cycle uh, in, in line with Krishna consciousness, a standard program of sadhana, and then the highest ultimate understanding of rasa and relationship with Krishna. So how can we connect with Srila Prabhupada? I mean, I, I would say that no matter... Uh, no matter what our life, no matter what our uh, affiliation within the Gaudiya Sampradaya, that we would do well to connect with A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. That he's such a, an empowered and unique teacher of Krishna consciousness. And, you know, I, I'm willing to admit that my view of Srila Prabhupada is colored by the fact that I'm his disciple. So perhaps I'm coming at this uh, purely from a subjective and sectarian point of view, that may be the case. But it seems to me objectively that the accomplishments of Srila Prabhupada, the mood of preaching of Srila Prabhupada, is something very special, and we would behoove ourselves to take advantage of that. So how can we connect with Srila Prabhupada? Well, the main way that we should connect with Srila Prabhupada, the main way he wanted us to connect with him, was to follow his instructions. So that's... You know, those of us who are in Prabhupada's line and have taken vows of 16 mounds, three dietaries, we should do that. And we should do that trying to become free of the offenses. I mean, otherwise, to just say, Jai Prabhupada, Jai Prabhupada, Jai Prabhupada. If we can't follow the simple four regulated principles, 16 mounds, three dietaries, what is the meaning of our Jai Prabhupada, Jai Prabhupada? I mean, okay. It's worth something, but, but not a whole lot. So that's the main way that we can connect with him. It, it may not seem like uh, that that's a way of connecting with him, but it really is. Mahajanayena, uh, that we follow the Mahajans, we follow their path, we follow their instructions. So that's the first and foremost. You know, if, if we're, we say, oh, I love Prabhupada, but I'm smoking marijuana. Oh, I love Prabhupada, you know, I only chant two rounds. Or whatever, you know, then... And what it, it's not very much meaning to it, not very substantial. I, like uh, I said this a lot, I was I overheard a class between two of my godbrothers many years ago, and one said to the other, "Oh, I never see you at Mangalartik." And the other one said, "Well, my heart's at Mangalartik." And the first one said, "Well, why don't you bring the rest of your body?" And then the next way that we should connect with Srila Prabhupada is a way also that he emphasized, and that is by studying his books. So studying his books, uh, listening to his lectures, his conversations, and I often make the point that these are somewhat different. Prabhupada has information and guidance in his books that he does not have in his lectures and conversations and letters. His books have everything for everyone, and therefore without reading his books, it would be very hard to understand him. And these books, Prabhupada says, are his personal ecstasies. 
And then in Prabhupada's lectures, we see, we hear how Srila Prabhupada preached his philosophy to different audiences. The same with Prabhupada's conversations. In Prabhupada's lectures, conversations, and letters, we see how Srila Prabhupada is applying the knowledge in his books to various audiences at various times. It's, it's quite a personal connection. Another way of connecting with Srila Prabhupada is to take up his mission. So not just our own personal sadhana and our own personal study, but to somehow or other spread Krishna consciousness. And how we do that, whether we do that through translating books, through writing our own books, through distributing his books, through distributing prasadam, through going out on Harinam Sankirtan, uh, through starting our own self-sufficient farms. Uh, how we do this is, is very individual, but somehow or other to be preachers. So Srila Prabhupada wanted us to be preachers. And we could speak, of course, for uh, months and years, and we only have a minute, so uh, the value of becoming preachers and connecting us with Srila Prabhupada. We see that Srila Prabhupada was always a preacher. He was always trying to preach Krishna consciousness, and of course that is the main way of connecting not only with Srila Prabhupada, uh, but also with Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And connecting with Radha and Krishna, with the six Goswamis, etc., without connecting with Mahaprabhu, uh, practically in this Kali Yuga, it's, it's really extremely difficult. And the main way we're going to connect with Mahaprabhu is through compassion. Mahaprabhu is the personification of compassion. And that is going to be through preaching. And then we can also connect with Srila Prabhupada through uh, worshipping him, through his murti, through offering artik to him, through uh, offering Guru Puja, you know, singing prayers to him saying his pranam mantras, offering obeisances to him, bathing his murti, dressing his murti, uh, making offerings to his murti, and, and so forth. Otherwise we, other ways we can connect with Srila Prabhupada is by offering our own personal prayers to him. One thing that I used to do when I ran a Gurukul, and I've often done uh, on Prabhupada's Vyasa today, or, or more on the Tirubhav, is writing down what I'd like to offer Srila Prabhupada in terms of of my life, you know, what I'd like to do for Srila Prabhupada. And w- when I was in New Zealand one year on Prabhupada's disappearance day, about maybe 200 people came to the festival and I distributed paper and pencil to everyone and I said, pretend that there's no restriction of resources, money, people, talent, pretend that you have absolutely no restrictions. What would you like to do for Srila Prabhupada? What would you like to offer to Srila Prabhupada? And, you know, it can be make a diamond murti of Lord Chaitanya. I mean, what, you know, open a Govindas in every city in the world. Whatever you'd like to do. And if you offer that to Prabhupada, who knows? Maybe it will come to pass. And even if it doesn't happen on the external platform, just offering something on the subtle platform is still accepted. So, ask, saying to Srila Prabhupada, this is what I would like to do for you. I've received so much from you. This is what I would like to do to repay you. So writing a letter to Srila Prabhupada. Uh, helping out with the temples that he's established. So participating in those temples, offering service, whatever, according to our capacity, cooking for the deities, doing deity worship there, cleaning the temple, participating in the programs, offering donations to his temples, to his projects. And uh, I'm sure there's many other ways that we can think of why we, by which we can connect with Srila Prabhupada every day. And it should be something that we're doing uh, daily and, and regularly. 
having a personal connection with Srila Prabhupada, uh, some way that, that Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastra Koi, Lava Matra Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi Hoi, that just one eleventh of a second association with a pure devotee is very powerful. I was just reading a, a story of one devotee, I think it's uh, Ananga Mundri, my god sister, and she was saying how that her parents had not been very favorable, especially her mother had not been very favorable to Krishna consciousness. But when her mother was dying, she said, uh, you know, at the very end, she said, so am I going to see Krishna? Is Krishna going to come? And then a moment later she said, oh, I see Krishna's here. Krishna's here. He's inviting me to have a picnic with him. And then she died. And I was thinking about the effect of the preaching of Srila Prabhupada upon not only ourselves, but anybody that we come in contact with. So we've talked uh, about Srila Prabhupada's life as, as the example that the lives of the sadhus exemplify the shastras, give us an understanding of how the shastra is practically applied. I talked about Srila Prabhupada's teachings in terms of uh, ultimate rasa, in terms of sadhana, in terms of uh, living a life, varna, varna and ashram, and simple living, and we talked about connecting with Shiva Prabhupada by following his instructions, reading his books, preaching his message, and in some way helping others to become Krishna conscious. So I have just four minutes here. If anybody has any questions, comments, additions, subtractions? Mataji, if nobody's going to ask a question, I'll ask a question. Um, you mentioned uh, about the contribution that George Harrison made um, to help Krishna consciousness spread uh, into the masses, um, and also in the new Hare Krishna film, uh, Yadavari, I think he also kind of wanted to emphasize that. Uh, personally, I never uh, felt like it was that big of a contribution, although for me it, it was that in the added credit credibility and trust, but how actually... Well, there you just said it yourself. For you, it added credibility and trust. It's the same thing it did for me. It's still doing it today. And it's still it's still doing it today. You know, you, you give out Krishna book and you have the forward by George Harrison, it adds credibility and trust. I mean, when I was a teenager, I first contacted Krishna Consciousness when I was 12, and then I think it was when I was 14 that I heard the Radha Krishna Temple album on the radio. And just the fact that George Harrison was into Krishna consciousness, yad yad acharati shreshas, just that fact added credibility and trust. I trusted Prabhupada and I trusted the Hare Krishna movement because George Harrison was into it. So, you know, that's happened to you, it happened to me, and it happened to, you know, so many thousands of people. So a lot of us... Uh, that was a factor in our deciding to join the Hare Krishna movement was that George Harrison was into it. It was definitely a factor. And it was a factor in the general public accepting us in Krishna consciousness. So it was a huge... Having somebody who's, you know, trusted and well-known in the public sphere giving their imprimatur to a religion has been the main way that religions have spread in, you know, the last few thousand years of recorded history. I have a question. Um, you talked about connecting to Prabhupada. For myself, 
probably the, the two most things that I do every day that really, I really feel my connection is chanting my 16 rounds very faithfully and getting up early in the morning and giving that the most important uh, seat in my entire day and, and adhering very strictly to the four regular principles, sometimes struggling with them, but following them. Um, and then you, what you, when you talked about the four principles, you said that the, you mentioned it was very uh, unique. My well, you need to is, make it a vow. In other words, you don't that, find that was my question. Yeah, is that, is that not done? Was that not do, done in other Gaudiya Sampradayas or any, any uh, that? Is there a vow to chant rounds and follow the principles, or is it just something just for us Western Malechists? Uh, it was sort of understood, like it's not even. Yeah, it was. It was. Saying. Yeah, it's what? Like, not nice. something that was said out loud. Hmm. Interesting. I never thought about that. It was just part of being a civilized human being, practically. Yeah. That. It, in other words, when when Krishna consciousness was spread in cultures where people already understood that. Hmm. So. It, it wasn't. It didn't. It almost didn't need to be said. Well, how brilliant was Prabhupada to put it <laughs> to to really emphasize it? Yes, uh, it that was brilliant. He, that he knew he had to do that. That if he didn't do that, that he wouldn't be able to spread Krishna consciousness to all the cultures of the world. Mm. And you know, he picked the four things which were particularly given by uh, Maharaj Brickett as to where Kali could reside. I mean, I've often thought of it that Prabhupada didn't, like, say... You know, there were a lot of other moral principles that Prabhupada could have listed as vows. You know, he gives... There's, like, the list in the um, 13th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, text 8 through 12, which Prabhupada basically repeats in Ishapanishad Mantra 10, I think... So he could have given us a list like that of vows, but he, he didn't. And in fact, there's people who've asked me, you know, what about oral, other moral principles like don't steal and don't lie? Um, and Prabhupada picked the four that were particularly where Kali resides. And I think you, you could also say that Prabhupada assumed we already knew that we weren't supposed to lie and steal. You know, so it's a similar thing. Prabhupada didn't say don't lie, don't steal, don't you know, don't murder. Because those were already laws of the land. Why why say them? Why make them part of the vows? But yeah, and you see generally how many rounds one chance that was something it was individual between guru and disciple. It wasn't a standard for every disciple. And making a standard for every making a vow that was a standard for every disciple, as far as I know, is something that wasn't generally done. So my uh, my family is waiting for me. We have a morning program at seven. Uh, you're welcome to go on without me, but I need to go. Shri Prabhupada ki jai.